So recalibrating where we are, it's the season of Lent still. In the last few weeks, in our sermons and our worship, we've talked some about our tendency as sinners to, to derive our value and our security and our comfort from the world apart from God. And we all struggle with this in some way or ways, right? As more than once in recent weeks, I've stated that we are all addicts. I know everybody may not like to hear that. You're free to disagree, but that's my assertion. We are all addicts. Well, today we've been given an example of someone who's caught up in the addiction loop. And that is in the example of the Samaritan woman at the well in our passage from the Gospel of John. So this morning, I'd like to use the story of Jesus' encounter with this woman to talk about how somebody becomes an addict of anything, then how addiction works, and also how addiction can be overcome through the power of the Lord. But first, some background to this passage itself. There's a lot going on here, you may have noticed. It's sort of a lengthy passage, but you really can't shorten it any more than we have. In John chapter 4, Jesus has left the Judean countryside around Jerusalem and is traveling north toward Galilee, which is where he grew up. Those of you who do have a bulletin can see on the map that between Judea and Galilee is a region called Samaria. Now, Samaria was a Jewish territory. It was Jewish territory for many centuries in biblical history, as indicated in our passage by the mention of Jacob's well being located there just as one example. But in the few centuries leading up to Jesus' day, or quite a few centuries, but a few centuries leading up to Jesus' day, the region had come to be populated by a group of people known as Samaritans. Samaritans were Gentiles. I mean, they were not ethnically Jewish, but they had embraced the God of Israel as their own. And they observed the Torah, God's law. But they also thought of themselves as the bearers of the true faith of ancient Israel, which they thought had been distorted by the Jews for the previous thousand years or so. And they departed from the traditions of the Jewish religion that were so prevalent in Jesus' day. And they departed in some significant ways, not just, you know, about Pharisaism and those sorts of things, but the, the greatest example is the Samaritans most notably had their own temple. Did you know this? The Samaritans had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is on your map if you're looking at it. This is where they worshipped and was kind of the hub, the center of their worship, as opposed to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem where the Jews, which was the Jews' hub, right? But the Jews didn't let them worship there. And this is because the Jews and Samaritans refused to associate with one another. In fact, they despised each other. To the extent that if a Jew was traveling from Judea to Galilee, they would go out of their way, and really far out of their way, to avoid contact with Samaritans by going all the way across the Jordan before going north so as to not have to step foot in Samaria and risk encountering one of these awful people. But Jesus doesn't roll like that. Jesus doesn't discriminate. 
So when he traveled between Jerusalem and Samaria, he went the quickest way to get there, right? Straight through Samaria. And this is what leads him in our passage today to come to the Samaritan city of Sychar. And when he does, it's about the sixth hour, which was high noon in the way they kept time. And Jesus is worn out from the travel. So while his disciples go into the city to buy food, he takes a seat beside the well. And that's when a certain Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And what this woman's interaction with Jesus will reveal, and why it's relevant to the introduction I gave, is this woman's been attempting to fulfill her God-given needs for security, comfort, and value through worldly solutions apart from God. The paragraph beginning at verse 16 reveals the particular way that this woman has been seeking to do this is through men. Verse 18 reveals that she's had five husbands and she's now living with a man who's not even her husband. Now I'm sure we can imagine that each one of these relationships, when they began, had begun for her with not only excitement, but with what must have seemed to her like such promise. And yet eventually, these relationships would leave her with only heartache and emptiness. I think we can infer that, at least from this passage. Not to mention scorn among her peers. With her being an addict of sexual relationships, who knows how many in her community she would have alienated, perhaps through adultery or through going after their husbands. And what tells us that something like that's gone on, some sort of social scorn, is that she's coming out to draw water at high noon. This well, the whole community around it would have come to this well to get their water, but nobody would do that kind of work at the hottest time of the day. So that's when she's going. Because that's when she can be sure that no one else will be there. And that's why her interaction with Jesus, who does happen to be there, occurs with no one around. So these attempts by her to, to quench her spiritual thirst in worldly ways were clearly not working. And they were creating more problems for her than they, they were solving. But lest we stand in judgment of this woman, we mustn't forget that, again, we are all addicts in some form or fashion. Sure, romantic relationships may or may not be our drug of choice like like her, but I'm sure many of you uh, with bulletins have already stumbled across the list of addictive agents I included today. In case you didn't, let me review the list of the variety of worldly solutions we may be prone to turn to in vain attempts to quench our spiritual thirst. The first addictive agent on the list, agents on the list are alcohol and drugs. Well, that's no surprise, right? Those are kind of the, the most famous ones. But after that, the list includes number two, work achievement and success. Number three, Money addictions, such as overspending, gambling, or hoarding money, miserliness. Number four, control addictions that surface in personal, sexual, family, and business relationships. Number five, food addictions. 
Number six, sexual addictions. Number seven, approval dependency. That is the need to please people. Number eight, rescuing patterns towards other persons. Number nine, dependency on toxic relationships. Relationships that are demanding, damaging, and hurtful. So the woman at the well is maybe some combination of six and nine to some degree we don't know. Number 10, physical illness, hypochondria. Number 11, exercise and physical conditioning. Number 12, cosmetics, clothes, cosmetic surgery, trying to look good on the outside. Number 13, academic pursuits and excessive intellectualizing. Number 14, religiosity or religious legalism. In other words, the preoccupation with the form and the rules and regulations of religion rather than benefiting from the real spiritual message. Fifteen, general perfectionism. Sixteen, cleaning and avoiding contamination and other obsessive-compulsive symptoms. Seventeen, organizing, structuring, the need to always have everything in its place. Number eighteen, materialism. Right, so just shopaholic. Number nineteen, Phone, screens, video game. Now, anybody get out of that list unscathed? Of course not, right? If we're being honest, I'm sure every one of us can identify more than one of these addictive agents that we've developed an unhealthy dependency on. Again, it's not that they're all bad in and of themselves. It's the dependency that we develop on it and the, the, the process where we're trying to slake our spiritual thirst in this worldly way, apart from God. Perhaps it's the list like this is why author and doctor Gerald May provocatively suggests that, quote, to be alive is to be addicted. Right? Physiologically, the processes underlying it are always there. Okay? So in a minute, I want to talk about how the cycle of addiction functions in our lives, but first, I want to explain how these addictions tend to develop in the first place. See, addictions often begin as a response to an experience of trauma, an experience of trauma, or to experiencing, kind of in a more prolonged way, a lack of adequate emotional care from our primary caregivers during our formative years. Now, this isn't to blame parents for our addictions, no earthly parent is perfect, right? But without deliberate and intentional intervention, we're actually bound to parent either roughly in the same manner as our parents parented us, which is why every family has patterns of generational sin, or we may parent in reaction against our upbringings, which left to our own devices and our own wisdom and understanding could be equally harmful. To explain this further, how this develops, when a child experiences a particular trauma or immature parenting, we might call it, right? Which was, let's say, what I'm saying is that most is, okay? The feeling this often creates, these experiences often create, is a sense of worthlessness. That's the feeling it creates. It's not that we even need to be explicitly told, hey, you're worthless, or we even need to consciously think, oh, I'm worthless. No. Many people may have never, never consciously thought that to themselves. Rather, this worthlessness is an, a subconscious feeling. 
In particular, that we aren't worth enough for our emotional experience to matter. And the recent experiences where we may have felt this way as children are particularly damaging or make us more, you know, more prone in those situations towards addiction is because children often lack the resources to process those experiences in a healthy manner, right? Or to counteract or cope with the feelings of worthlessness. Again, you live life in this world. You're going to have trauma. You're going to have people not treat you well. You're not going to get all the care that you, God made you to need. Right, But in the case of a child in particular, they don't necessarily have a way to do anything about it. So in order to counteract or cope with the feeling, even the subconscious feeling of worthlessness, in order to keep those feelings at bay, we develop habits that can manufacture good feelings so we don't have to feel those negative feelings. Right, Habits that can manufacture instant gratification. Psychologically speaking, we use an addictive agent, like on that list, to dissociate from the emotional pain we're experiencing, if you want to be jargony about it. Okay? And in the short term, that solution seems to work often. So we may begin using that addictive agent to dissociate when many different forms of pain arise. Right? It worked for this, maybe it'll work for that in that situation. So you can see in the bulletin that I've printed how the addictive cycle works, but I'll say it in case you don't have the bulletin. We experience pain, right, as a result of life in this world. But then we turn to the addictive agent for the immediate relief, but our dependency on it produces long-term consequences. In other words, more pain, because we're not living in this world the way God designed us to. Right? We're putting too much pressure, frankly, on that addictive agent to slake our spiritual thirst that it can't do it. Okay? But we don't, so it produces all these long-term consequences. In other words, it adds to our pain, but then with more pain, we don't know anything else to do but turn to that addictive agent again. And so the cycle goes and it goes and it goes and goes, round and round and round and round. Right? That's how it works. And most of us don't have just one. Right? Because you never know when one ain't going to be there for you. Again, it's all subconscious, usually. Right? Most of us have multiple, dependency on multiple addictive agents, so that if one ain't there, we can reach for the other. Or if we're trying to kick one, we just ramp up the other. But again, you'll notice that many of the agents we listed are not activities we would necessarily consider bad in and of themselves. While society and the church may have taboos around some of them, right, like drug addiction or sex addiction, dependency on many of these addictive agents listed can be approved by society and the church at times, or even downright celebrated by both. For example, some that are celebrated, at least in society, might be working hard or, or rescuing others, um, or exercise, or religiosity. Right? I wonder if that surprised anybody to see that one on the list. Religiosity. Right? Yeah, you're in church, and I'm saying there's such a thing as really toxic religion. Quote me on it. Right? But just to give a, 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 a seemingly benign example, I know one way I dealt with stuff growing up was by fusing myself to spectator sports. Okay? By watching my favorite teams play, right? Which is fine, right? 
There's nothing wrong with watching sports in itself. But when you use that to dissociate from reality or to fuse your emotional well-being to the performance of a team, which works better and worse based on which team you pick, by the way. <laughs> the Orioles never help me out in this game. When you do that, when you inappropriately fuse to that, it, can, it ends up producing bad fruit, right? It, it makes you emotionally unavailable to your loved ones. It, you know, I could, the list can, I can make a list. I had not script it. I can make a list. But to give another example of how the addictive cycle we're talking about functions with an approved uh, addictive agent, approved of by our society, like working, right? The way workaholism might develop is a person experiences those feelings of worthlessness or, or lives with them. Again, it may be subconscious. But then they find that if they just work harder than the average Joe, that the world will reward them with money, with success, and with praise. It's great, right? Unfortunately, this compulsion leads to consequences in other parts of their life, right? And it may make them, real or not, feel like a bad spouse or a bad parent, right? Because they're not available as much as the parent next door, right? So again, what's happening? Those worthless feelings are back. So what do you do? Well, you do what you know to do, right? right? The way the person's learned to medicate those feelings is by working more and more and more. And so knowing nowhere else to turn, that's what they do. And the cycle goes on and only gets worse. All right, so that's kind of making it concrete, I hope. Finally, how would, this, how would this addictive cycle have developed in the case of someone like the Samaritan woman? Well, there's no way of knowing the reason or reason she would have begun experiencing worthlessness in the first place, right? And again, it's not about blame anyway, right? To some degree, it's inevitable in this world. But apparently, somewhere along the line, she decided to counteract those feelings through a romantic relationship with men, with a man, right? Single man. But since no human relationship can adequately fulfill our God-given spiritual needs for comfort, value, and security, she was looking for something out of that relationship that it can never fully provide. Frankly, I see this all the time. I and mean, people come in for premarital counseling, and I try to explain to them, like, I know the world tells you this person's your soulmate, which is a load of junk. I know this person's going to just fulfill everything in your mind, and it's not going to happen. And you're putting way too much pressure on the relationship and it's going to cause stress on the relationship that it ain't going to be able to hold up to. So turn to Jesus and invite him into the relationship so that, you know, it has a chance. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not recommending that guy for premarital counseling. I mean, it doesn't work, right? Nobody, it's like telling people something. You know, they got to experience it. But write this down and look at this in a year and a half. <clears throat> so in the case of the Samaritan woman, right, that first relationship eventually fell apart, which would have only caused those feelings of worthlessness to return, but not just return, but to be stronger, right? It's added to it. She feels more worthless, right? So to dissociate from that increased pain, the woman turns to another relationship, rationalizing that this one will be different. 
And the cycle goes on and on and on. And the pain and consequences, right, pain for herself, consequences just, you know, relationally and socially only pile up such that in her case it's gotten to the point that she can't even draw water any time other than the heat of the day, which I can promise you was not fun, right? They, didn't, they weren't carrying around, they weren't doing this on a go-kart, right? They weren't riding a golf cart over to the well, right? They were taking a big old, you know, So when Jesus encounters this woman, he decides to use the occasion of her drawing water, meant, of course, literally to quench her physical thirst. He chooses to use that situation in order to reveal to her that he is the answer for the spiritual thirst she's been trying to quench through these worldly means of romantic relationships. After asking for her for a drink, Jesus says to her in verse 10 that if she knew the gift of God and who it was asking her for a drink, she would have asked him, and he would have given her living water. Now she, it's kind of like Nicodemus last week. She's still being literal, right? So she's missing it, right? She's puzzled. She's like, you're not holding anything to dip water with. But in verse 13, he explains that while anybody who drinks of that well water becomes thirsty again, right? Whoever drinks the water he is offering will never be thirsty again or will have their thirst quenched an eternal forever way. So he's teaching her that while looking to worldly solutions for our comfort, security, and value may seem to work for a time, ultimately they will prove inadequate, not only failing to cure our pain, but beginning to add to our pain. But in contrast, when we learn to derive our comfort and security and value from him, we will find he is sufficient. So where worldly solutions are like that well, which has become increasingly difficult, right, for her to even get water from, right? It's kind of like the drug addict, you know, this is what we know, the cliche, you, you keep needing more. That's, that's true for all of those on the list, right? All 19 or whatever. Where worldly solutions are like this well, which has become increasingly difficult and onerous for her to get any water from, Jesus is like a spring of water that can always be trusted to supply. But how can she begin to make the shift? Well, she first has to acknowledge how she's been seeking to quench her spiritual thirst with worldly water. She's got to admit it. This is why when she responds in verse 15 to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty or come here to draw water anymore. Jesus then shifts the conversation toward these these toxic relationships. And then by the end of the paragraph, he makes explicit that he is the Savior, right? Meaning she needs to learn to trust him to meet her spiritual needs. Well, it's the same for us. If we come to recognize how an addictive cycle is wreaking havoc in our lives and relationships, we first have to face up to it and admit that it's a problem at all. We have to do that first. And we can do this by confessing it to another person, right? Whether it's confessing to a priest or another mature believer, I don't really care, right? I'm talking about confessing it to to somebody else. Confessing it to just God is not enough, right? You already know that God knows everything, right? You really want to get serious about something, you've got to admit it to another human being. But once we've done that, 
We can't just try really hard and not to do it, right? Or we can try that, I guess, but we'll soon find that doesn't work, actually. The whole problem with addictions is that we're powerless to overcome them through the strength of our own will, right? So the way we short-circuit that addiction cycle is not by trying real hard not to do it. That's called white-knuckling, right? It's not by trying real hard not to do it, but by instead allowing Jesus to counteract, the, not the urge, but the feelings of worthlessness that underlie it, right? With his love and grace. Therefore, the task for us then is to learn to drink from, from him, to drink from the one who deemed us unconditionally worthy of his love by going to the cross for us. Our task is, is to learn how to spiritually drink from Jesus regularly and effectively. Now, I say effectively because this doesn't mean just going to church or doing something spiritual or reading your Bible. Tons of people do that in a way that doesn't actually make it here to those sense of, that sense of worthlessness, right? I mean, religiosity was addiction number 13 on the list, right? And I would suggest that some religious activity, sadly, maybe the majority, of church environments are actually set up to compound that sense of worthlessness, right? There are whole theological doctrines based on making people feel more worthless to keep them coming back to Jesus, I guess. I come back for his love. But as we learn how to spiritually turn our hearts to Jesus and actually receive the comfort and the sense of security and value we need from him, then we will come to yearn for that addictive behavior less and less. Now, I may, may be oversimplifying what this would look like to play out in our lives a little bit, especially depending on the severity of the addiction, right? We need other people. We need people who've gone the path before us and who get it and know our blind spots. But I also want to be clear that learning to trust Jesus for all this doesn't, isn't, I don't want this to sound like some super spiritual fix either. It's like, it doesn't mean that we need to go become monks and nuns, right? It doesn't mean, it also doesn't mean we should expect him to meet these needs of ours always directly, okay? We're talking about the, these needs of, uh, needs of value and security and comfort, right? Jesus may often meet those needs, I would say he does, often meet those needs through the created world. And through people, right? Through things even, right? Christianity doesn't teach that everything in the material world is bad, right? It just teaches that we're really prone to misuse it and worship it, right? God, God rather lays out boundaries for how to properly engage the material world. So trusting the Lord to meet our needs doesn't mean we just sit on our couch and expect him to zap us with everything and fill our bank account and all this kind of stuff. It means learning to look for him to do that, sometimes directly, but maybe more often through worldly means, but within the boundaries he's laid out. Not through treating the things of the world as ends in themselves, but enjoying them appropriately and responsibly. So, the Lord may provide for our need for comfort through another believer. Or part of him assuring of 
our need for security may come through him providing money for us, right? We may work for it, but we recognize him as the provider, the one who gave us the gifts and the skills, etc. Or he may bolster our sense of value by having someone say to us, hey, good job, when we do something well. And us learning to actually receive that and hear. Yeah, I guess that was a good job. But we also have to recognize, part of trusting him for it, is recognizing that he may provide for that same need in the future in a different way. Part of the problem with addictions is you're going back to that same well. <laughs> See what I did there? You're going back to the same well every time, expecting the need to be provided in that way. God may provide the comfort I need through, through Amanda saying something kind to me someday and through Luke saying something to me the next, right? I mean, you don't know how God's going to provide. You're trusting him, not those individual people. Let me also state that as simple as all this may sound, to reorient our lives to trusting Jesus in this way, it is most definitely not easy, right? In fact, I think one of the biggest mistakes, one of the biggest mistakes when people read this passage of Scripture to me is to assume that this woman's life just instantly changed. I mean, I think I've subconsciously read this passage that way for a long time. Like this woman, she met Jesus at the well, and then, man, it was just... It was unicorns and butterflies after that. Happily ever after. I don't think so. I don't, in fact, I strongly disagree with that. Right? I mean, certainly the trajectory of her life may have changed, but her interaction with Jesus would have been just the beginning of a lifelong journey of, frankly, rebuilding her life upon him. And will part of that require her to leave the six guys she's with? Yeah, ultimately it probably will, right? If she really wants to follow Jesus, all right? Because that's outside of his boundaries. Verse 28, I think, interestingly points out that when she leaves the well, she leaves her water jar behind. I think there's some metaphor there. But I'll tell you what, I bet she, maybe she doesn't need to leave that guy tomorrow. Why? Well, again, whatever comfort, security, or value she's been receiving from the relationship with this guy, she's going to first have to learn to receive it from Jesus in order to be able to disconnect from that unhealthy connection, right? I mean, you'll see people just swear it off, right? Oh, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going to leave this person or whatever. I'm going to leave this addiction cold turkey. You're getting something from that. It may have been insufficient, but you are getting something from that. So to think that you're going to be able to just go handle life, right, cold turkey? No, you have to learn to receive from Jesus first and build up him and, frankly, build relationships in the church with healthy people in order to ever have a prayer of having any kind of, we'll call it sobriety from that addiction that can last. Otherwise, when the going gets tough, what's going to happen? They're going to turn right back to that addictive agent. And also, it, no, as far as no unicorns and butterflies, I mean, at any point in the rest of her life, she could balk at this following Jesus thing. She could. I mean, she'd get to a point where you're asking too much. And she, go, she could go then play church, or she could just leave the church, right? We're not talking about rationality here. We're talking about someone operating out of trauma. 
right, I'm about to, about to wrap it up here. About to wrap it up. We must recognize, though, that our addictions are attempts to do away with God. To meet our God-given needs apart from him. So the antidote is learning, often with the help of others who've gone before us, learning to trust in God to meet our needs and to learn to receive from him. Right? That's a learning process. But I should finally say our goal should not be to rid ourselves of all addictions in our lives. You say, wait a second. Well, I mean, as this Dr. Mays guy said, he said, to be alive is to be addicted. And to, but listen to the second half of what he said. To be alive is to be addicted. And to be alive and addicted is to stand in the need of grace. It's to stand in the need of grace. Ultimately, addiction is part of the human condition. Therefore, our goal should be progress, not perfection. And this means, very practically, starting to address with God the addiction that is causing the most harm in our lives right now, in our life, and seeking progress in Him by discovering what needs that addiction's meeting and exploring with others to find and receive that living water from Him. I think I've said enough. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,